We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. On May 27, 1787, the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser reported that the convention assembled in Philadelphia had already decided that each state would have a single, equal, vote in the convention's deliberations. Later, newspapers would report that things were going so well, that it hardly seemed like work to revise the government of the United States. There was, of course, only one real problem with these published reports. But they did serve a valuable purpose as the convention had, in fact, adopted two specific rules, which, in combination, would be powerful tools for the job of writing the Constitution of the United States. On Thursday, May 31, 1787, the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser ran a headline story which proclaimed that the ongoing convention, which had just really gotten underway, would abide by a specific set of rules, one of which was that each state would have an equal vote in the conference and each state would only have one vote in the conference. The packet, as it was then known, was one of the leading newspapers of the day. And in fact, it is the direct ancestor of today's Philadelphia Inquirer. It can kind of trace its lineage all the way back to the Philadelphia packet and daily advertiser. The newspaper operated well into the 1800s, almost to 1840, before it was finally sold out and disappeared as its own entity along the way. It was famous for having been the first newspaper to publish the Declaration of Independence. And of course, it was a very popular newspaper in America's largest, most metropolitan, most cosmopolitan, and capital city of Philadelphia. Other newspapers would later report that the Constitutional Convention, which it wasn't known as, as that, at that point, was going so swimmingly well that eventually the name of Independence Hall would actually be changed to Unanimous Hall because everybody was in such agreement and everything was going so wonderfully in Philadelphia. The convention had actually finally gotten underway a couple of days ago with enough states present that they could begin to function as a committee. In fact, 
because of the way they would set up the convention, it would in effect act as a committee rather than a convention for most of its existence. One of the oddities of the rules is that at one point, all of the men in the room represented the convention and the voting convention as it were. When at the same moment, literally, they could, by simply invoking one of the rules, turn themselves into the committee, in which case they could function as a committee of the entirety and not be bound by the rules of the convention per se. It's a very interesting way that they set all this up. And of course, how they got to that point is what we're going to talk about today, because the rules of the convention really were key to its ultimate success. And particularly, three of those rules are going to really make the difference between a successful convention and a failure at this whole thing. When the convention finally gathers together, it is incumbent upon them, of course, to appoint a leader. Oddly enough, while everyone pretty much assumes that George Washington will be the leader, there are some customary processes that have to be gone through first. And one of those traditions is that the president of such a convention normally comes from the state which is hosting the convention, in this case, Pennsylvania. All eyes sort of turn to Benjamin Franklin, who by his seniority, his intelligence, his wit, his charm, his ability to get people to communicate with one another, is the logical assumption. But on May 25th, when the convention gathers to name its president, Benjamin Franklin is not present. The thing to keep in mind about Ben Franklin is he's very old. He's in his 80s. He's not feeling well. And in fact, over the course of this convention, he will barely speak at all. In fact, he'll do some prodigious writing of his speeches of what he wants to say, but they will be read by someone else into the record as opposed to Benjamin Franklin standing and writing them himself. He's uh, essentially carried everywhere that he goes. He is very old, but he's the presumptive nominee because it's Pennsylvania. When Robert Morris, who is the governor of Pennsylvania and also one of the richest men in America, also a representative of Pennsylvania at the convention stands up, it's assumed initially that he's going to nominate Benjamin Franklin. But of course, he does not. He nominates George Washington. And the reason for this, for him doing so, is by having the governor of Pennsylvania nominate a Virginian to be the president of the council, it sets an example that Pennsylvania sort of wanted to put out there of the fact that we're going to have to unite and we're going to have to put what's best for all of us ahead of what's best for each of us. And the attitude of Pennsylvania, and, and Ben Franklin was completely on board with this, is one of unity rather than trying to scrape out what we can get best from all of this. It is important to keep that in mind because again, the purpose of the Constitution of the United States is union. It's not to solve social problems, it's not to, uh, you know, it's to preserve liberty and to maintain the union, to establish a union. You can't do any of the other things. You can't get rid of slavery. You can't provide for the national defense. You can't ensure justice, domestic tranquility. You can do none of those things without union. 
And all of these men in this room realize that because the reasons they're there are that there are so many problems with what's going on. With General Washington named as the head, the president of the, of the convention, he assumes his seat up front where over the next few months he will practically say nothing from that chair. But keep in mind that he's only the president of the convention. He's not the head of the committee. And so when these same men decide that they need to meet as a committee, President Washington, as he is then, because he's the president of the convention, will actually step down from his seat, go over, sit down at the Virginia table. They will have their con uh, committee discussions until they're ready to present to themselves as a committee, to the, to the convention themselves, uh, whatever has been recommended for a vote, which according to the Pennsylvania packet is one state, one vote, much like the, uh, the, the Congress works at this particular point. And this is an important idea to keep in mind because of the rules that have been established via this whole process. The committee decides that they need to have some rules as to how they're going to handle this convention. And so they name as the chairman of the rules committee, Virginia's George Wythe. I spent many years stationed in Virginia. It's, uh, it's still one of my favorite places. I really, really liked Virginia a lot. And one of the towns there, and one of my good friends when I was in Virginia, was from Withville, Virginia. And of course, you assume it's named after a person, but you don't really make that connection until you start going on uh, downstream and you start learning these things. And of course, Withville is named after George Wythe, who is a very intriguing individual, and yet at the same time is a very good choice for this rules committee. The primary characteristic of George Wythe that you really need to understand, and there's a lot to this guy's life. I mean, he is one of the first American law, he is the first American law professor. He's a classic scholar, he's a judge. He is a prominent opponent of slavery, which is unusual at this time. He's, he's the mentor to Thomas Jefferson. In fact, he's referred to uh, some, somewhat uh, literature, liter in a literary stamp viewpoint as uh, Thomas Jefferson's other father. Uh, he, was a, he was a mentor to John Marshall, to Henry Clay. He is a little bit older. He was born, of course, in 1726. And so he's up there in age. But George Wythe is known for his calm, rationale approach to just about anything. And in conjunction with that, he is known for being able to take two men who are arguing to the point where they're ready to duel and getting them to calm down and agree. And George Wythe is going to be named as the chairman of the rules committee at this particular time. This is the first thing they're going to do. They're gonna set up this rules committee, which is going to then go off and kind of put together the idea of how they will run this particular convention. And we might think to ourselves today, well, that seems like something they should have done beforehand, right? But remember, these states have gathered ostensibly for the purpose of 
amending the Articles of Confederation. We already know that Virginia has, Virginia has made it well known that they intend to provide for the idea for something much, much bigger and much, much different than simply an amendment to the Articles of Confederation. In fact, uh, the Madison Plan is really what has gotten George Washington there. Washington believes that there's nothing short of a radical change that can save the nation. He th he's absolutely convinced that if they continue down this path, it will end in destruction. They must, in fact, restore sane, worthwhile, working government to the people of the United States. Oddly enough, Edmund Randolph, who in, in, in just a moment is going to really kick off the convention even as the Rules Committee is meeting, warns that the greatest danger to America is, are you ready? I mean, if you were to ask that question today, what is the greatest danger to America? And if we were to actually go back in 1787 and think about this for just a moment, what was the greatest danger to America in 1787? Keeping in mind that, you know, we've looked at the Federalist Papers and we've looked at the preamble and we know that there are a great deal of things facing the nation. We know that there are still enemy troops on our land. We know that the economy, while it seems to be slightly recovering, is very fragile and probably in shambles. We know that the justice system is cracked and not providing for uh, justice equally across the board. We, we know that the confederacies are doomed to die. We know Congress can't raise any money because the states don't seem to want to help. Uh, we, we know that the Spanish have uh, forbidden us access to the Mississippi River. We, all of these things are facing the nation. And remember in 1787, you still had a European war on the horizon that was pretty obvious. I mean, you had all these great empires and nations and you had uh, hostile Native American tribes on the borders. You had people that were not happy with what the way things were going. And at this point, Edmund Randolph, who is, of course, uh, the governor of Virginia, and who is one of the leading folks of this uh, thing, is going to expound to the convention on all the problems that they're facing. In a lot of ways, it's a very wise thing to do. I mean, you, you the, the Federalist Papers, they sort of do the same thing. But at the convention, while it seems unnecessary because the fact that everybody seems to know why we're there, sometimes it's helpful to just sit back and reiterate what's going on. Why, why are we here? And Randolph does this. But when he gets to that moment where he talks about the greatest danger facing America today in 1787, I would encourage you to play a little game here. In just a minute, when I tell you to, I'll count down, I want you to stop the tape, stop the podcast wherever you are. And I want you to, if you've got time or if you want to do it in your head, write down what you think the greatest danger is to America today. What is the biggest threat we face? And then, just for consideration, because I've told you most of the threats that they faced. What's, what do you think was the biggest threat, particularly compared to today, that they faced in 1787? Compare your answer, see if you come up with the same answer. And then when you're done with that, 
re-roll, start the tape over, start the podcast over, because you're going to be a little surprised, I think. Maybe not. Maybe you've been paying attention long enough to know that you wouldn't be. I, I think you're going to be a little surprised at what Edmund Randolph and the convention believed was the greatest danger to America in 1787. And I'll give you this hint. I think it's pretty close to the greatest danger we face today, if you really stop and think about it. I'm going to take a little break. You do the exercise. When we come back, I'll tell you what Edmund Randolph said was the greatest danger to face America. It's Constitution Thursday on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. This is the Scotsman. And this is Drew. And we are the Ale Evangelist Show, spreading the good news of good booze across the land. Wine is nice, but beer is better. It is indeed. So tune in to us on the Podcast 99 Network, where California comes to talk, www.podcast99.com. I'm Jeff. I'm Pat. And check us out on Lawless Chat, where we discuss topics from A to Z. And from Z to A. And from soup to nuts. And from nuts to soup, pretty much everything under the sun. Catch us on a weekly podcast on Podcast 99 Network. that the Virginians, who had of course been meeting for some days, from 10 days to two weeks prior to this, for up to three hours a day, had been discussing and refining and considering Madison's plan for the, for the new government of the United States, which of course would consist of a two-house legislature, an executive, and a judicial. It didn't work quite the way we're used to now, but you can see in it some of the the seeds of thought that would eventually end up where we're, where we're going to end up with. And what will be eventually known as the Virginia Plan is initially introduced to the convention by Edmund Randolph as the Randolph Plan. It consists of 15 resolutions. Some of these resolutions, however, for the convention to consider are non sequiturs. In other words, they simply don't make sense from a parliamentary standpoint. And that creates some debate and discussion. But in presenting his 15 resolutions, Edmund Randolph, no doubt with a great deal of help and preparation from James Madison, who has brought with him literally a library of everything that has gone on before in republics, 
in democracies, in confederacies, every form of government that's ever faced the earth, walked the face of the earth, he has some book somewhere on it that talks about the, the philosophy of that government. Madison is deeply, however, disturbed because there are no records of how they came up with these ideas for these governments, whether it was a republic, whether it was a confederacy, whether it was a monarchy, whether it was constitutional monarchy, whatever. There are very few, if any, records as to the discussions that led to that form of government. And so he has privately decided that he is going to write such a record of this convention. And in fact, he literally invents his own form of shorthand so that he can jot down notes and speeches and things that are said as they're happening. And then after, at the end of each day, he can go and transcribe that into a full record of what has happened. Now, there are a lot of scholars who question the veracity of some of what he had to say. They think some of it has been massaged by history and so forth and so on. Keep in mind that Madison lived for many years uh, after the convention and after the Constitution was adopted. And it's possible that he changed some things because there are some other folks who took fragmentary notes that disagree with some points of Madison. But the question is, who's, whose was massaged? Was it Madison's or was it someone else's? And the simple fact is that the most complete record we have is that of James Madison, and it fits with what we know of what came out of the Constitutional Convention. And so there's no reason to reject it from that standpoint. Madison was dedicated to the idea of making sure that at some point we knew what had happened. His journals, however, were not held by the United States government, and later on, the government will actually run into a little problem, a little constitutional problem with some interpretation. And so they, the Congress will actually order in the 1820s everything that the government has about the convention published, and it's virtually nothing. And it's of no help at all to anybody trying to interpret uh, a particular passage of the Constitution because it sheds no light on it at all. Madison's records, however, some years later, uh, will help. And that's why we, we have them today. And of course, they have been turned by Max Ferrand into two wonderful books, which um, I highly recommend. They're, they're readable, they're mid-1850s English, so they're not, uh, you're not slogging through uh, the King's English per se, but they are quite big and they are quite uh, cumbersome at times, but they're well worth the read. And of course, all of this describes Edmund Randolph as he stands before the convention ticking off the problems facing America. You thought I forgot, didn't you? I didn't. When he comes to the biggest problem facing America, it is absolutely fascinating to me today because if you were to say this today about the biggest problems facing America, you would be attacked, I guarantee you, that if Edmund Randolph stood up today and said what he said in 1787, on May 25th of 1787, he would be pilloried. The press would rip him up to shreds. Both parties would condemn what he has to say as, I don't know, unpatriotic, uh, un-American. They, they would have said horrible things about Edmund Randolph. But I submit to you that he is probably correct. He was correct in 1787 with the nation facing the problem at that day, and he's probably correct today. The biggest problem 
Randolph said, facing America today is very simply, quote, there's too much democracy. None of the state constitutions he observed have provided sufficient checks against democracy. Now, of course, in the past hundred years, we've come to refer to ourselves as a democracy. We have major presidential candidates who will regularly refer to our American democracy. We'll talk about democracy this, we'll talk about democracy that, how wonderful democracy is. And in fact, the Supreme Court is actually going to take up a case uh, this term about uh, the meaning of the phrase one person, one vote, one man, one vote um, in, in the vein of democracy. But the problem with democracy, of course, and, and we're seeing this here in California with our initiative system, the problem with democracy is it tends to be a mob rule kind of scenario. Worse, democracies are easily corrupted by money and power. And the more you think about our nation today, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on today, but if you consider the idea that we have moved uh, mentally from a republic to a democracy, I mean, even when I was a kid, we referred to the American you know, as a democracy. We're a democracy, we're the Western democracies. We're the leader of the Western democracies. You almost see with that a rise in the corruption of the political system via money and power. Now, the, the political system has always been subject to that, and I'm, I'm not gonna deny that by any stretch of the imagination. But to the degree that we are talking about now, to the point where we've reached the point now where people don't believe that there's no point in me voting. We've never reached that point in our nation before because of the corruptive influence of power and money. But power and money corruptive goes hand in hand with democracy. And if I to turn ourselves, at least in our minds, into a democracy, what have we seen happen? And of course, in 1787, we saw the same things happening. The states did not try to stop democracies. The states, by their constitutions, keep in mind at this point, were not necessarily republics. The United States of America was not a republic. It was a confederacy. Confederacies, of course, are uh, doomed to die by their nature because of the fact that there is no powerful central government. The government cannot command a citizen to do something. Only the state can, states can, the individual states can. And if they don't want to, they don't have to. And so you end up with a situation where the, the, the central government says X, the states say Y, and nothing gets done. And in the meantime, the states, because they are essentially direct democracies, are being influenced by money, power. In Massachusetts, those money, those money powers are uh, violating the property rights of individuals, farmers, and the like, who, as it turns out, had been former soldiers in the American Revolution and believed that they were fighting for their liberty and their property. The, uh, the state of Rhode Island is using democracy to essentially upend the entire Confederacy, to, con to basically control, via one vote, uh, the, the entire Confederacy. There's money manipulation going on. There's a great deal of uh, confusion about foreign relationships. Individual states are signing pacts with foreign nations for trade arrangements and the likes of that, while other states, because of their uh, natural geographical boundaries and the like, are being uh, left, not just left out of those pacts, but in fact, in some cases, particularly North Carolina, they're being, uh, uh, they're being hurt by those. 
Rhode Island, of course, is closely aligned with the South, believe it or not, because of Southern cotton and the textile industries and the, the, the slave trade, which goes a long way to explaining why they're not here, by the way. Democracies are by nature destructive. It, it sounds like a great idea. Democracy is the human ideal. We always talk about, well, we should all have a say at the table. Uh, I can tell you for myself in, in a management uh, career that nothing drove me battier than when I would go to talk to people because they wanted my advice or something and they would say, yeah, we have a team concept here. Everybody has an equal vote at the table. Well, that's great, ex except you're not getting anything done. So why aren't you getting anything done when you have everybody having one vote at the table? And I used to give them my, uh, my football analogy, which is of course, you have 11 people on a football team, they all have to have the same goal, but left guards don't call the plays and don't, they're not the captain because you have to have one captain and one coach. In a, same, in a similar vein, in a republic, you have to have one central government that essentially sets the, the goals, the priorities, the direction for the rest to follow. That doesn't mean that you take away the sovereignty of the state, doesn't mean you take away the sovereignty of the individual. But it does allow you to not allow popularity contests to run your nation. It doesn't allow for, as the British were discovering, rotten boroughs where essentially money could buy whatever you wanted when it came to politics. Keep in mind that King George III was the genius at the rotten borough. They were well familiar with that idea. The, the, the entire Revolutionary War probably never happens if King George III isn't able to buy his own parliament to approve his policies of suppressing the rebellion in America. If that, if that parliament is actually legitimately elected by the people of England, that war probably doesn't happen. Parliament probably says, you know what, good on you. We'll, we're still your friends and have at it. As some had argued in parliament against the king's policies. Money goes a long way to destroying, power goes a long way to destroying a democracy and turning it into uh, either an oligarchy or a, even a dictatorship. And Edmund Randolph stands in front of the the, the convention and he says the problem that we have today is we have too much democracy. That's the greatest danger facing America today, 1787. We have too much democracy. And I submit to you that if you were to look at it cogently today, you could make that same argument. We have too much democracy and not enough republic. And that could be the source of a lot of our problems. In any case, he presents his 15 resolutions, whilst the, while the convention listens politely and, and hears him out, the rules committee continues to meet and continues to hammer out how we're going to proceed uh, through this convention. And clearly we're already at a, a boiling point because what we thought we were here to do, which is revise the Articles of Confederation, we're not even 10 to 15 minutes into this thing, and already one state has recommended that we just jump them and go a completely different direction. It's not that everybody doesn't recognize the problems with the Confederation. 
But this is going to cause an uproar because the small states are very concerned about the ideas that Virginia is proposing here. What happens to their sovereignty? Delaware, as we talked about last week, is panicked. States that don't have necessarily uh, good relationships with foreign and, or other states are, are, are concerned as well. Pop, unpopular states are not, they're, they're all scared. Southern states are very concerned because, of course, uh, their economy is driven on a slave economy, which under the Articles of Confederation, not the Constitution, under the Articles of Confederation, their population of slaves is counted as three-fifths of a person. And if this Virginia plan goes through, what happens if they don't count our slaves? We're going to lose power, we're going to lose influence, and we're going to lose the ability to defend our sovereignty. Within the first few hours of the convention, it is fair to say that the one thing there is not at this point is humanity, union on how to preserve the union. In fact, some of the debates are going to become pointed. They're never really going to become mean-spirited, but they will become pointed and they will become concerned. And you will have Sam Adams out there being asked by other newspapers, hey, why didn't you go? Well, I smelt a rat, he says. You'll have anti-federalists, people who are at the convention who are just, just think that this is a horrible idea. The one thing there isn't in this convention is a unanimous opinion that should result in the name of the hall being changed to Unanimity Hall. So why then? Are newspapers reporting that there is? That's a question, isn't it? It's Plausibly Live. Constitution Thursday on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of the Dave Bowman Show. As the rules for the convention were debated, several people stood up and had some suggestions as to what some of those rules should be. A South Carolinian by the name of Pierce Butler, also known as Major Butler, recommended the first rule. Well, the first rule would be that we were going to follow basic parliamentary procedures. So, But aside from that, he particularly wanted a rule that would prevent licentious publication of the convention's proceedings. Now, in essence, what he was asking for was confidentiality, that no one talk about what's going on in here, that there be no press releases, that there be no press articles, that there be nothing in the newspapers that could then be turned to use against anyone here. This rule is pretty important if you think about it. It's so important, in fact, because this is what allows 
the convention delegates to actually speak their minds as Americans rather than as necessarily representatives of their state. Now, while that might seem counterintuitive to us, but the reality is they're not going to get anywhere if they're constantly looking over their shoulders because someone in here is leaking what's going on and it's getting into the newspapers and somebody finds out about it and doesn't like it and begins to rattle cages. So serious do they take this rule. You need to understand this. George Washington, up until this point, is taking pretty copious notes. He puts down his pen and does not write another single word during the convention about what's going on on the convention. That's how seriously they take the secrecy rule. In fact, guards are posted at the doors and in the streets so that no one can just walk up and lean in and, and hear what's going on. People can walk by, by the way. They can see through the windows. And in fact, there are contemporary newspaper accounts of, of what's going on in there from a visual standpoint, but nobody can hear it. And so there is complete secrecy to this, which of course raises the question, how does the Pennsylvania packet on May 31st run an article about, hey, this is great. They're, uh, they're so unanimous about what's going on that every state is gonna have one vote and they're all going to be equal which is completely false. No such proposal has been made. No such rule has ever been agreed to or ever will be agreed to in the history of this convention. And in fact, nobody is unanimous in their decision. There's no chance of this place ever being named Unanimity Hall. How do the newspapers get these ideas? Well, this secrecy rule is so well enforced that the newspapers are, of course, looking for, as they do today, any lead, anything they can find. And it just so happens that one member of the convention is a newspaper man himself. Of course, he's a lot of other things, but he is a very reliable source, as it were, and he's one of them. What they fail to consider is that Benjamin Franklin is also one of the biggest pranksters in the entire history of this country. Ben Franklin loved a good joke as much as the next man. And realizing that the newspapers were going to have to print something, he takes it upon himself. Well, we don't actually know that he did this, but the presumption is that he did, that he leaked good stories about what was going on that were completely false to the press, knowing full well that the conventioners were going to read the papers and they would see all of these positive things being written about what was going on, even though they knew they weren't true, but they would see that the country was looking on as with great expectation of a positive outcome. It might be, I guess you could put it down, it's probably not the first one, but it may be one of the biggest spin sessions you've ever seen in the history of this country done specifically for the reasoning to encourage the conventioners to get it done and get it done right. There was no truth, there wasn't a single word of truth in any of those stories that those newspapers ran because no one in the convention violated that rule. But somehow or another, they got wind of good things that were happening and they never seemed to get wind of any bad arguments or anything like that. And of course, it's not hard from a historical detective standpoint to figure out who would do that? Who would tell them those things? Or at least have someone tell them those things? And you don't have to look far to finger 
Dr. Benjamin Franklin for his efforts there. Maybe the next time I interview him on the show, I'll ask him about that because I think he did it. And if he didn't do it, he knows who did. We'll ask him the next time. The second rule was a little bit more um, subtle, I guess. And it's the kind of rule that if we look at it today, we don't, uh, this is not a rule that I think you would agree to today. The North Carolina, dele North Carolina delegation proposed that the delegates, quote, might not be precluded by a vote upon any question from revising the subject matter of it, unquote. Now, you'd be, you'd be a little surprised, but with committee considered those two rules overnight and approved them and said, yep, we agree, these are two good rules. Now, what the second rule essentially means is that if we have a vote in the convention and we say, okay, we're going to have a House and a Senate, and we do this, let's say for the sake of argument, uh, this week, May, uh, last week of May, 1787, this rule means that at any point in the future, one of the delegations can bring that up again and say, are we sure we want to do that that way? We can revise this, we can change this downstream. And if you think in, in terms of today, you realize that th that's a rule that nobody would ever agree to today. No, once we decided, it's decided. And you might counter argue that with, and I've said this myself on numerous occasions, particularly when it comes to tax issues. No, never means no. Just because we say no, doesn't mean that they're not gonna come back and do it again. But that's not really what this rule does. This rule, because what they were doing was so radically new and different, meant that on Monday they might decide to do something a certain way and they might approve that in the full convention. And then on Wednesday, they might be talking about something totally different, but slightly related because it's in the convention, or in the, you know, in, it's gonna be in the Constitution, but it's gonna affect how they did it the other way and it's gonna affect it in either a negative or positive way. It's going to weigh something, balance something. And so they didn't want themselves locked into having to do it that way because we already voted on that. We can change those things. We can go back, we can consider, we can revise. And they will use this rule extensively. In fact, virtually every week over the next four or five months, they're going to pull this rule up and re-talk about things that they've already decided. And while that might seem repetitive and annoying to us, these two rules together, the fact that they were able to speak their minds in security and that until the final document was signed, nothing was in stone enabled these 55 men to really pound out a document that they could, as George Washington say, it's not perfect, but it's the best that we can possibly do. These two rules from Wythe's committee, approved by George Wythe's committee, Wythe's committee um, really enabled the convention to do what it set out to do. They're not rules that we would probably approve today. I can't, I, our government today, the secrecy rule, that's not happening. Criminy, we can't, even when we have security, we don't follow it. And the idea that for the length of this convention, until we adopt whatever it is that we end up with, we can change and revise anything, would, would, would drive people like me nuts. I mean, it really would. But for these 55 men, it was an empowering rule. 
it was a rule that enabled them to really dig down deep and start putting things together. And I, from a management standpoint, it's a it's an amazing thing. And I, you know, I'm not in management anymore. I'm not in uh, those things anymore. But I I do do some consulting on the side now, and it's something to consider, isn't it? That when you're going to I don't know revise a business plan, when you're going to revise something, and and you don't really know what you're going to end up with. Maybe it's a rule to consider. Lessons from history, I suppose. George Wythe, of course, uh, is the, the guy behind these rules. George is a, he's a fascinating guy. He will actually go on to be murdered, at least allegedly murdered, uh, by, by one of his uh, heirs later on in life. In fact, his final words are purported to be, I am murdered. Uh, others uh, involved here will be shocked by this. This is is a scandal that will rock the nation. But that's years from now. For right now, the Rules Committee has said we're going to follow parliamentary rules of procedure, and we're going to keep absolute secrecy, and we're not going to lock ourselves down until we're completely done. And in those actions, simply establishing those rules, the convention will, in essence, make a mockery of the newspaper business and at the same time get down to the business of creating a national government. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. Copyright MMXV. All rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.